0: The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord, a prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you,
1: Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Let's uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are asking that the boundless truths that were just read would find their purchase in the seed of our hearts. Lord, we know that if the Apostle Paul couldn't plumb the depths of your love, and if he could only say that it was a love that surpassed knowledge, uh, then who are we to think that we can get our heads around the love of Christ at all this morning? But Lord, would you fill us nonetheless? Would you accomplish your work by your Spirit to remind us of your love through our Savior? And Lord, we pray that as you do that, that these would not be my words, but your words and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This is a beautiful passage. It's a big passage. Um, let me start this way. This, this week, uh, a few days ago, I was talking with my daughter, Caitlin. She was describing this program that she really liked, and she said, Daddy, I just love it. I love it. I love it 100. I was like, wow, 100. All right. I said, well, and, and she goes, but Daddy, or I, said, I asked, I said, well, how much do you love me then? And she said, Daddy, I love you 1,000 and then she goes but daddy daddy i love god 1000 1000 right so 1000 1000 i mean that's a that's a good number i guess right it's a big number she's you see what she's doing there she's reaching for the greatest mathematical imagination that she can conjure up to try the biggest number she can think of as a 6 year old to try and describe her love and she comes up with a number that's you know roughly half the size of the population of charlotte i mean it's a good start right it's a, It's a decent number, right? 1,000, 1,000. What number would you give your love for God? Ponder that for a minute. How far does your mathematical imagination go? But now, after having pondered that, know that that's not the question that Paul is trying to answer here in this passage. It's a fair question, but it's not the question he's getting at. Paul wants to know, what number would you give to express God's love for you? How far will your mathematical imagination allow you to go on that? That's probably not a cognitive question so much. That's more of a heart question. These verses don't just stretch our minds, they're meant to kind of stretch our, our hearts. Paul's grabbing the simple constructs of, of God's love and he's pulling them wider and longer and higher and deeper. And when he's done, it's like he concedes defeat. He just says, I can't paint with a big enough brush on this one. He says, This is a love that surpasses knowledge. Says God loves beyond anything that I could ask or even imagine. What stretches your imagination? I would answer it this way: uh, This summer on our sabbatical, I was uh, we did a road trip uh, with the family and went up to New York and Vermont and Canada. And while we were up there, we we stopped by my old hometown where I'm from, Rochester, New York, and spent a couple of days with a cousin of mine. And while we were there, we went to the the National Museum of Play. This wasn't there when I was a kid. I just want you to know. So uh, it was there, but it was a really boring museum. It was like a dollhouse collection. Now it is an epic 285,000 square feet dedicated to interactive exhibits on the history of toys and games and play. There are, I, it, it, th- we were warned. They said, you're not going to be able to get out of this place, and it's not going to be the kids that don't want to leave it's going to be the adults, right? There was an entire floor on the history of board games, right? There, was, um, there were video game antiques from the 80s. Um, that's, that's my Atari set right there. And next to it, see that red thing? I had that, but I don't remember what it did. So if any of you guys had that and you remember what it did, please talk to me afterwards. Um, it does have a hit me button on it, so I think it might have been an early form of gambling. I'm not quite sure. But um, uh, there was a pinball room. There was a set from Sesame Street there. There was a room that was uh, devoted to all of the original Star Wars action figures, like all set up in like dioramas and stuff. I mean, basically, I've just described my childhood, right? Sesame Street, video games, Star Wars. That was it. So we're staying with my, my uncle who just turned 60, and he said, you know, Kevin, back in my day, we had two toys. We had a stick and a rock. I said, <laughs> So when you got tired of playing with the stick, you picked up the rock. You got tired of playing with the rock, you picked up the stick. And I said, well, i got to show you this photo then because that's, that's really funny. I said, well, here's this photo that I found from the third floor of the building which is the inductees to the National Toy Hall of Fame and there, inducted in 2011, were my Star Wars action figures. There they are. And I said, look, that's my childhood pretty much right there, Dean. And look, right below it, ironically, there's yours. Stick. <laughs> inducted 2008. <laughs> stick made the Hall of Fame, the Toy Hall of Fame. I mean, Etch-A-Sketch, Potato Head, Stick. Right? You should also know cardboard box also made the cut. I thought that was interesting. So stick. Way to go stick. What's so great about a stick? If you have to ask that question, then it's been a while since you've been a kid, right? Because it's not just a stick. When you're a kid, it's a world of possibilities, right? It's it's a bow, it's a sword, it's a it's a horse, it's a spaceship, it's a boat, it's a drumstick, it's a bat, it's a magic wand, it's a lightsaber, it's whatever, right? It's not just a stick. But now as grown-ups, it's just a stick. When we grow up, we look at it. It's just a stick. It's something that we look at as as basic. But it used to unlock our imagination and our wonder. We talk here, in fact, if if you walk through the children's hallways, you'll see this on the wall. We talk here in our children's ministry about inciting wonder about our amazing God. That's one of our three main goals of what we're trying to do in the children's ministry here. That's what Paul is praying for the Ephesians here. Inciting wonder. He's praying for God to incite in them a wonder for his glory and specifically a wonder for the love of Christ towards them. And if you don't have eyes to see it, it's just a stick. It's something that we look at as as basic it's base level, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so, and, and, and there's something that maybe, uh, maybe that held out wonder for us when we first believed or when we first heard that song or sang that as a little kid, but, but it's lost its pull for us. It doesn't seem to have the same meaning for us that it once did. It doesn't seem to have the same bearing on our lives that we know that it should. Early in my ministry, um, I realized that I was... Um, finding it hard to know what to pray as I was praying for, just kind of praying down the list of the members of the church and knowing what to pray for them. Um, wondering what is it what is it that they need? What, what do they need me to pray for? And I realized that my prayers were not big enough or imaginative enough, and so somewhere along the way, early on, I, I borrowed this prayer, this prayer that we're looking at this morning. If your prayers don't run in more imaginative directions then I pray Jimmy has a good day at school or pray for travel mercies. There's nothing wrong with those prayers, but, but allow your imagination to go bigger. To, and let me encourage you to take this prayer and I'll even encourage you to, say, to commit it to memory. And to take the blanks and fill them in with, with people's names. Uh, I pray that Graham would be rooted and established in love. I, I pray that, that Peter would have power together with all the saints to grasp the width and, hit, uh, width and height and length and depth of the love of God. Right. When you're asking for those things, when you're praying those things, you are praying for revival in a person's soul. You're praying that someone might know better how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is for them to know a love that surpasses knowledge. You're just stretching the boundaries of what you're praying for them. And there's more to this prayer that comes before that part. So before we get to that part, Paul sets things up um, because to even begin, I'll put this up here, to to even begin to plumb the dimensions of the love of Christ, you're going to need a couple things. To even begin to plumb the dimensions of the love of Christ, the first thing you're going to need is some context. Paul says, verse 1, For this reason, I kneel before the Father. So we have to ask, for what reason? And if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember Rick was preaching on uh, verses 1 through 13, and uh, he said that there was a bit of an interruption there. He called this a squirrel moment, where where Paul is saying, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he gets so caught up in it, he goes on this, I would say, divinely inspired, inerrant, discursus, digression, rabbit trail, right? And if we can picture, I picture Paul as he's writing, I picture him going, okay, wait, 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 wait. Where was I? <laughs> oh yeah, for this reason. And then he, he hits it there. He picks right back up at verse 14, right? So if that's the case, then for this reason, if, if for verse 14 is really what verse 1 was, was originally, what he thought it was going to be, then for this reason is looking back on all the epic, amazing, awesome stuff that we've talked about in chapter 2. The last three weeks that we spent with uh, my sermon and Peter's sermon and Rick's sermon, and I'll just give you some bullet points on that, but just remember that we have said in, in, during those three weeks that God is making a new people. God is uniting Jew and Gentile. God is building a temple of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. God's love um, is shown to us in the fact that we are community, that remember we talked about that together we are his, his workmanship, his poem, that together we're his building, that together we're his body. All of those good things that we've talked about from, from chapter two. God's building a new family. It says in verse 15 of this passage that that God's gathered that family and he's named that family. He's making, so he's building something. He's up to something. And so this amazing new reality, you just feel the emotion in it. It brings Paul to his knees in prayer. You feel this throughout. I, I, I picture Paul being a bit more of an academic, just a, a pretty button-down kind of guy, but man, when he hits this passage, he just can't even get it out. I mean, he gets... Uh, what, four or five words into verse one and he just, it just takes him on a tangent. and When he finally comes back, he says this, this truth brings him to his knees in, in prayer. It just levels him. And all he can do is say how amazing it is that he can't describe it and by the end, in verse 20 and 21, he's just, he's just in doxology giving praise to the Lord and just saying amen. You just feel the emotion in it. To begin to really know the riches of the love of God, you need to understand that he's making a community that you will live that love out within. The second thing that you need to better understand the love of God, um, basketball people will appreciate this, is a Holy Trinity full-court press. That's what I'm going to call it. (laughs) Um, In other words, it's the full effort of the whole Trinity. We see in verses uh, 14 through the middle of 17, we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit doing a full-court press on the hearts of the believers in Ephesus and on our hearts as well, right? He prays, first of all, that the, he prays for the, the, it's about the riches of the Father. Then he talks about the power of the Spirit, and he talks about the indwelling of the Son. He prays that the Father would give, I like the way the ESV does it. It says, would give according to his glorious riches. Not just out of his glorious riches, but he prays that God would give according to. um, There's a guy named Kent Hughes who put it this way. He said, God is no mere John D. Rockefeller who sometimes gave from his riches, but is rather the one who gives according to his riches listen on the scale and in the style of his wealth and glory in other words it's not just that god has abundance for you it's that god is abundance for you he's he's giving not just based on what he has he's giving based on who he is in the style in the style and in the and the the, the grace of his riches so then Paul prays about, that's the Father, then he prays about the Spirit, and he prays that the Spirit would enable, that, that the Spirit would dig deep into, he says, your, your inner being, in other words, past the head to the, to the heart. And he actually talks about empowerment twice, he says, the word uh, in Greek, the word power is there twice, so you could hear it this way, uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower you with power, power and capacity to comprehend, Right? And then my favorite one, verse 17, here comes Jesus, right? The indwelling of the Son, so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And I think that's a beautiful image because there's two different words that Paul could have used to describe dwelling, the word dwelling there. Um, one of them is just the basic word for dwelling. It's, it's, uh, it's the verb where we get the noun for house from. But it's, usually, it's used of a lot of different things, but it's usually used of kind of a temporary residence. It's used to describe Abraham, who was nomadic. But then you take this, this, uh, this prefix, this amplifying prefix, and you, you attach it to the beginning of that word, and you've got a new word. And that's the word that Paul uses here. And it specifically refers to a settled dwelling. Think about that for a minute. It means moving in, it means settling down, it means colonizing. If the first word is a tourist visa, this is permanent residency. This is about Christ being at home in your heart, at home in your life, deeply rooted and at the very center of things. About him being the controlling factor in, in your life and the controlling factor in your decisions and, and in your conduct and in your attitudes. It's praying, one guy said, it's praying that Christ would get comfortable in your heart. that He, he belongs there and it, he fits there. And that's all connected too. You see in the prayer it talks about being rooted and established in love. Paul's I guess nobody told him he couldn't mix metaphors, so he grabs two. He says uh, there's an agricultural thing being rooted and then being established is about laying foundations. It's an architectural image there. Um, So if you're more agricultural or more architectural, grab the one that suits you best or the one that you can picture best, but he grabs them both. And what they have in common is that they both will, what they're saying is that things grow upward best from a good base, whether that's good soil or a good level foundation. And so he's praying that God would provide a stable, healthy understanding, a stable foundation of his love so that their understanding of God's love would grow tall and would grow mature. I I know I've just said a lot, so let me summarize. Um, Paul is praying that the Ephesians would live and move and have their being in the vastness of the love of God. That's what this prayer is about, specifically the love of Christ. But to begin, to even begin to understand that vastness, it helps to start with two things. It helps to start, first of all, understanding that God is up to something. He's building something. He's tearing down the divides that used to separate people from each other. He's tearing down the divides that used to separate us from God. And he's doing all of that by grace through faith, right? So he's, he's doing something. The second thing is, he's initiating something. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are initiating all of this work. The Holy Spirit is enriching us. So the Father is enriching us. The Holy Spirit's empowering us. The, uh, Christ is indwelling us. And all of that sets the plate for verse 17 and 18. Um, Personally, my favorite part of this whole passage. It says this. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all all God's saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God that prayer is meant to reboot, reignite, re your wonder for the love of Christ. Notice it is not a prayer that we would love Christ better. That's a great prayer. But this is a prayer that we would understand better how much he loves us. I think we can all imagine, most of us, I think probably all of us in here can imagine a God of love. And since he's infinite, we say, okay, that's infinite love, that's nice. I think all of us in here can imagine, all of us out there can probably imagine um, the love of Christ. There are plenty of people who believe that Jesus was a loving person, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, whether you're Muslim or Hindu, plenty of people who believe that Jesus was a loving guy. But the vastness of that love is lost on us because it's shown to us in a specific way. If you grew up in the church, it is is possible that this was your first encounter of Jesus. There he is, right there, right? This is flannel board Jesus. He comes with a full set of flannel board disciples and flannel board sheep, and you can tell flannel board stories on a flannel board with him. I have nothing against flannel board. It's actually probably the first way that I encountered Jesus as well. But as we've grown up, it's possible that we have not let our understanding of Jesus grow up with us. Flannel board Jesus is very manageable. It's very two-dimensional, right? He fits really nice in your back pocket. You can whip him out when you're in a pinch or you've got a test or you can definitely pull him out on Sundays and say, look, here's Jesus, right? But in plenty of other areas of our lives, we don't know quite what to do with him doesn't know, we don't know quite where he fits or maybe we know where he wants to fit but we don't really want to go there because that would would get in the way of what we want for our lives and so he fits very nicely back in your back pocket but it's okay, you can still pull him out on Sundays and say, look, isn't Jesus great? A two-dimensional back pocket flannel board Jesus is not going to incite the wonder of his love to the way that we need it as we grow in him. And that's especially scary and especially true when we sin. Because, let's be honest, small Jesus, he's small enough for the small sins, right? Kindergarten sins. But as we grow and we sin more boldly, if we don't believe that the love of Christ is big enough to take it, then we're left with a problem. I wanna, I'm going to try and diagram this. A, a Christian starts with these two basic truths. Basically this, God's perfect, I'm not or we'll call it here the holiness of God and the depth of my sin, right? We start with those basic truths. There's God's holiness, and there's my sin, and the gospel says, we understand this as believers, we understand that that Jesus came to bridge the gap between those two, right? We understand that in order to stand in front of the majesty of God, that our sins would take Jesus to the cross so that he could build a way for us to stand there. And maybe that's a discovery that you made at an early age. I don't know. Um, I know I was thinking of my my oldest son, Benjamin. He's 10 now, but I remember when he was four. And uh, he was so impressed on this this particular Monday morning that Jesus had done everything right and that Jesus, quote, never got a spank. He was so impressed with that. And he was so happy that Jesus would forgive his sins. So high view of holiness, high view of sin for a four-year-old. Right? But as time goes on, if we're paying attention, our realization of God's holiness should increase. I mean, we grow in him and we learn more about just how fully in control he is and how grand he is and how significant it is for us to call him the Lord of the universe because we have a bigger understanding of what that's all about. And if we're paying attention, the other line, our understanding of our sin should increase as well. We plumb new depths, right? We blow it in waves we didn't even know were possible when we were an elementary school kid. And so, the ceiling of God's holiness finds new heights, and the cellar of of uh, of our sin finds new lows. And that creates a bigger gap, right? And and we know that there's a cross in that gap somewhere, but as the gap increases. If the cross doesn't increase with it, then we've now created some zones, some dangerous zones that we could fall into. Maybe we, uh, we know that there's a cross in there somewhere, but we, if we we're settling for a flannel board Jesus in there, then that's only going to forgive our little sins. And we don't understand how God could possibly forgive the big ones. And so here's what we do. Whatever the difference is between our understanding of the holiness of God and our perception of the cross, we are going to try and fill in that that quadrant, consciously or not, by our own performance. In other words, we're going to feel like there's still some sort of work that needs to be done to earn God's approval because Jesus only did that much, but my issue is this much. This is a very Roman Catholic trap to fall into, but don't be fooled. Christians of all stripes fall into this trap. We create... Jesus plus strategies, and we get busy about trying to Jesus plus some self-improvement or Jesus plus some, some uh, extra rules that are sure to impress him or Jesus plus work harder, try harder, do more, get noticed. Whenever you are doing anything that you think is earning you extra points with God, you have fallen into a Jesus plus scenario and you are taking a low view of the cross. And it puts you in this performance zone. Now here's the other zone. Uh, Whatever the difference is between our perception of our sin and our perception of the cross, we're going to fill with our own dishonesty. In other words, because we don't think that the love of Christ through the cross reaches down far enough for the new sins that we've discovered in our lives, then we're going to assume that somewhere down in that zone there might be some unforgivens. And it's easier to pretend that we're doing just fine with our kindergarten sins and our kindergarten cross and that it's plenty big enough to handle how bad we are because we're only that bad. And so we put on a good show for others. If we're really good at it, we'll even put on a good show for ourselves. We'll convince ourselves that we're just really not that bad. We just simply won't go there. We won't wrestle with our sin. We won't admit our brokenness. Now, I share all this because here's the crazy thing. If you want to know how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is, then you've got to be two things. You have to be honest with your sin, and you've got to be aware of his white-hot holiness. If those two dimensions stretch, then you realize that what you also have to do then is stretch your cross. How big is your cross? In what ways might you be trying to appease the gap between his holiness and your perception of his love? In what ways might you be unwilling to face the depths of your sin because you believe that you've plummeted deeper than the cross can go? If I can borrow from my prior illustration, the way that we incite wonder and truly see the love of Christ is through a stick. It's through a piece of wood. The toy hall of fame knows that a stick stretches the imagination, but our mind-blowing, wide, long, high, deep, Understanding of the love of Christ is pictured for us in a stick. It's a piece of wood. Christians for 20 centuries have had their wonder incited and their hopes stirred by that, by a stick. And what's beautiful, though, is that this one works in reverse. See, when when you're a kid, a stick is possibilities, and then when you get older, it's just a stick. This one works the other way. It's meant to. The cross is something that doesn't diminish in wonder as you age, It's meant to increase. It has to, or you're going to find yourself in those zones. We need a bigger cross as we get older because we need a bigger Savior. We actually get to mark the trajectory of this in Paul's life. Paul opens up and very personally describes himself at three different stages of his ministry. Let me take you back to those, and I want you to listen for his self-assessment. Early in his ministry, probably around 55 or so A.D., He's writing to the Corinthians. Oh, listen to this. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen nine, he says, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So where is he? Where does he rank himself? Uh, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. How many of them were there? Eh, a couple dozen. He puts himself at the bottom of the list, right? Six or seven years uh, yet later, he is writing the Ephesians, and this is actually in chapter three in the squirrel moment that Rick preached on last week. In verse eight, it says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Where does he rank himself? The least of all the saints. How many of those are there? If you're following the news, apparently there's one extra one now. But in the Bible, the saints are used to describe the people of God. All Christians, past, present, future, they're the saints of God. How many of those are there? There's a bunch. And he puts himself at the end of that list. He says, I am the least of all the saints. But now get this, First Timothy. first and 2nd Timothy, probably the two last letters that he wrote, he's, he's uh, close to the end of his life. He's certainly anticipating the end of his life. He's anticipating his death. And he says in First Timothy one fifteen, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So you've got to ask yourself, looking at that, what is going on? Does Paul need counseling? Is he getting worse? Is he becoming a more aggressive sinner? No, he's becoming a more aware sinner. Sinner. And every one of those passages, if you look at them in context, you look those up and you'll see the very next verse, he's talking about how amazing the gospel is because he understands that from the benchmark of his sin, it's all the more easy for him to see the amazing grace of the cross. Every time that he puts God's holiness against his own unholiness, the cross gets longer, wider, higher, deeper. And all he can pray is this wonderful apparent contradiction that the Ephesians would know a love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, we can't know it exhaustively. We can know it truthfully. We can know it fully. This isn't about simply knowing the love of Christ. This is about us experiencing the love of Christ. What would it look like for us to step into Monday knowing that you are more fully loved than you could possibly ask or even dream by the only one whose opinion fully matters? Every time that, that Paul puts his holiness against uh, God's holiness against his own unholiness, the cross shines brighter. The music team is going to close with a song. I'm going to ask them to come up. And I would say that this is an opportunity for us to incite wonder just as we listen to the words of this song uh, because the author of this song is trying to stretch his wildest imaginations of what the love of Christ looks like. The song's arranged by Mercy Me, but they didn't write it. it was, uh, uh, the song is actually uh, attributed to a guy named Frederick Lehman back in 1917, but he says that he wasn't exactly the author of it either. He, um, he did the first verse and the chorus, but the last verse and the verse that is the most well-known in the song, uh, he said it wasn't something that he wrote, it was something that he discovered. Let me read you the verse, and then, then I will tell you where he discovered it. The verse says this. Could we with ink the ocean fill and where the skies of parchment made, Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole; to stretch from sky to sky. Lehman confessed many years later that he found that verse written on the wall of a patient's room in an insane asylum after that patient died and was taken out of the room. And he said that he and a friend pulled up a, a wooden crate and sat on it and just stared at it. And then he started just right there with a little stub of a pencil to write the first two verses in the chorus around those words that somebody had etched. How big is your view of the cross? If it can reach into the depths of an asylum, don't you think it's deep enough and wide enough and long enough and high enough to allow you to be honest with God about your sin, to allow you to be honest with yourself about your sin and your brokenness. Jesus went to the cross to magnify the love of God so supremely for us that we could hear him say, I love you 1,000, 1,000. And that's our hope as we, hear, as, as we play this song. We want you to listen to the words and, and soak in the amazing love of God. Uh to know something that surpasses knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we don't even know how to scratch the surface. I feel like I'm playing with a chemistry set where there's a lot of chemicals. I don't know what any of them do and we're just mixing things together and we're dealing with things that are far too amazing and far too dangerous for us. Uh, your love is just wild and, and enormous and we can't even scratch the surface and Father I know that um, I along with many people in here sometimes we find ourselves saying Lord when we get to heaven we got a, a few questions we want to ask you and we expect some answers how foolish and Father when we uh, when we get there Lord for the first thousand years we're just going to be playing with our lips <laughs> jaws on the floor just saying wow when we know fully as we're fully known. And so Father, would you allow a little bit of what that realization will be then to creep into who we are now because it would, it would make us live differently if we did. Mark that out in us in Jesus' name,
0: amen.